Um, this morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 14. So if you've got your Bibles, I'll get you to turn there. Romans chapter 14. We're going to read from verses 1 uh, through to verse 12. And when I was preparing this, I was thinking that we might go all the way through to verse 23. But then as I kept reading, you know, we might do chapter 15. Um, might take us all the way out to the end is 16 as well, but I figure that's probably too much reading for a Sunday morning. Again, only half of you are awake anyway, so um, we'll, stick with the, we'll stick with the 12 verses and we'll reference other passages of Scripture as need be. So if you're there, I trust you're there. If not, it's on the screen and we can read it together. Uh, so it says this, Paul writing to the, Roman, uh, the church in Rome, starting at verse 1 in uh, chapter 14, says, except anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. And one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the honor of the Lord, since he, since he thanks, gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat. And if he, um, where am I? I've lost my place. Um, and whoever eats, Eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat. Um, and he gives thanks to God. Thank you. Thank you for who's helping me over here. Oh, I was lose my spot. Paul, be clearer. Write in better grammar, please. Um, for, for, <laughs> uh, for, none of us live, <laughs> for none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live... We live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of, uh, account of himself to God. Well, after seeing how much I struggled with just 12 verses, aren't we all glad that I've decided to just to concentrate on this this morning? All right. So, so, um, this morning, we're, we're going we're to attempt to, to, to extract some wisdom for this pa from this passage for us. And in order for us to extract the wisdom from the passage um, this morning, we, we need to understand a little bit of the, of the background about what, why Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And, and I want you to keep this in your mind. I want you to keep this in mind when, whenever you're reading your Bible, wherever you're at in your Bible, that the people who are writing Scripture are not simply just trying to write scripture to, to write, say, a systematic theology or, or to just make good theological points. They're writing into a context for a particular purpose. 
They're writing into a context for a particular purpose. And so Paul here, he's not writing Romans just so that he can inform them about how smart he is and how great his theology is. That's not why he's writing to them. Paul is trying to address a particular issue that has arisen in the church of Rome. And he's trying to resolve these, this issue that, that's happening. And the particular issue that's happening here is this tension that exists between Jewish believers in Jesus and Gentile believers in Jesus. So what has, what has precipitated this tension is what's happened in the history of the church at this particular point. So essentially the, the early church, the, the very first believers in Jesus were predominantly Jewish. They were predominantly Jewish. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, okay? And so what would happen as the gospel was being preached around, uh, around the Roman Empire by Paul, what he would do as his practice is he would go into the local synagogue, wherever he was at, and he would, he would preach to them. He would tell them the Messiah has come. He would tell them about Jesus. He would unpack the scriptures and show them that this testimony about this Jesus, it is the fulfillment of the Messiah. He is the Messiah that they were all looking for. Now, what would happen in some places is some would embrace this message that Jesus is Lord and others would reject it. But his first port of call was the synagogue. And he would preach and he would, he would, he would bring in any Jew who would believe, any, any of the Jewish people who would believe, they would then form the local church there in that city. And they would keep meeting on Saturdays. They would keep meeting in, in, in the synagogue on Shabbat. And then on Sundays, or the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as it would become called... Um, become known, they would then also meet as believers in Jesus. And so the early church, the first church culture that existed was a very Jewish church culture, a very Jewish looking church culture. When Jews became Christians, they didn't just stop being Jews, okay? They, they continued in many ways to, to continue practicing Torah observance, to continue practicing and observing Sabbath days, continue to practice food laws and kosher, all these sorts of things. And so what has happened now in Rome is an issue has arisen. Because in, in 49 AD, uh, Emperor, Claudius, uh, Emperor Claudius, in an, I don't know, it seems to be that in an effort to show the Roman Empire just how Roman he was and how dedicated he was to Roman culture, he exiled the Jews from Rome. So basically, if you're Jewish, you got to leave, right? Romans only, all right? And so they were exiled in 49 AD, and then some time goes past, somewhere between 7 to 10 years, and people kind of forget about this edict, and, and the Jews start coming back home. The issue is, however, they've come, in back, they've come back to a very different church than the one they left. They've come back to a church that has changed substantially from the one that they remember. You see, the, the, the church they left was, was probably a very Torah-observant church. They believed in Jesus, they were following Jesus, but they were culturally Jewish. And so they, they would observe Sabbath, and they would observe the food laws, and they definitely weren't going to, you know, just because they're following Jesus now, they definitely weren't going to go, you know, associate with things that could be potentially pagan or, or, or cultic, you know, with, with the temple practices, uh, the, the pagan temples around. They definitely weren't going to be doing that. And so when they've now come back from their exile, back to the Roman church, which has now been run by Gentiles for, you know, some seven, ten years, something like that, it's a very different church because the Gentiles weren't raised in that culture. 
They weren't raised in that culture, and so the culture has undergone a massive shift in that time. And what's happened is these Jews have come in, and they're no longer the ones who are setting the culture for the church. They're now the ones, they've gone from being the ones who set the culture for the church and what the church looks like and how the church practices in Rome. And they've gone from, people, from that to being people who have to accept the culture of the church. And it seems that that was very difficult for them to do. Difficult for them to do, not just because the Gentiles played really loud music and they had drums and they didn't like loud music and drums. But because in their mind, in their mind, a lot of the things the Gentiles were doing which it was, it was sacrilege. It was sacrilege. They, they, they feel free to just eat whatever they want. And we know that some of this food here is, 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 you know, you shouldn't be eating it. It's been sacrificed to idols. These, these, these Gentiles, they, they don't practice Sabbath. They, they don't observe Sabbath. How, how, can, how can they be faithful Christians if they're not practicing Sabbath? And so what was happening is these Jews were coming in and they were judging. They were judging these Gentile believers for how they were living. And in return, likewise, the Gentile believers were now looking down on these Jewish believers who were coming in and being all finicky about everything. This is the background that Paul's writing into. Okay? And, and, and now that you know that, you can begin to hear. Like, as an imagine, imagine you're sitting in a, in a, in a Roman church, right? And maybe a, a house church is a big house. But, like, as an imagine you're sitting in a house church like this, right? And, and you've got this mix of people. You've got this mix of people. And over here are the good Torah-observing Christians. And over here are the loose-living Gentile Christians. And they're just out here eating meat, you know? It's wild. But this is, this, is what, this is the story, this is, this is what's happening when Paul is writing into. And the tensions seem to be particularly over Torah observance. These particular cultural ways of life that the Jews had grown up with, had become accustomed to, and had begun to associate with faithfulness to God. They had begun to associate these practices as what it looks like to be faithful to Yahweh. And so to leave off these practices meant you were no longer being faithful to Yahweh. They were making it a sin issue. So who are the strong in this particular passage? Because it mentions the strong and it mentions the weak. Well, the strong, at least Paul, uh, Paul would put them here, the strong is most likely the Gentile believers. These, these are the ones whose faith is strong. They, they can eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Um, they don't mind. It's, you know, what, what was happening, basically, you know, it's, different, it's different for us. Our, our food, our food uh, um, production and distribution systems are very different to they were when they were in the first century. But essentially what would happen is in, in the pagan temples is they would sacrifice animals all day. Like tons of, tons of animal sacrifice going on. And that's a lot more than you can just eat in one sitting. And so what they would do then is they, they, would, they would, you know, butcher up the animal and then they would take it down and they would sell the leftover meat in the local market, you know. Waste not, want not. Makes sense, right? And so what would happen then is, is people would come along, Jews and Christians, if they wanted meat, they would go along the market and they would buy this meat. And the Jews recognized this is, this is the same meat that's, that's offered, this is the same meat that's offered in the pagan temple that's been offered up to an idol that makes this meat unclean. This meat is associated with paganism. And Gentiles just seem to be like, well, 
It's me, you know. I don't have that clean, unclean distinction that, that you guys have, so I don't have this issue over it. And so the strong, the strong in this particular context are probably the Gentile believers who, who don't seem to have an issue with who don't seem to have an issue with eating meat that has been sacrificed in the pagan temple and it's come now through a distribution chain, now they're partaking. They don't seem to have an issue with it. And they also don't seem to have um, they don't seem to be particular about observing Sabbath. And, and I'm saying that because these are the things that Paul says. You know, some people, some people believe one day is more holy or special than another. Some see every day as the same. Um, so this is strong. The weak, you know, are probably the Jewish believers um, who were still, culture, had been culturally ingrained that this is the way that you are faithful to Yahweh. And it would be totally disrespectful and unfaithful to Yahweh to be eating food that's been sacrificed in a pagan temple. And before, before you get all judgy on, on the Jews here, let me just remind you at this point in time, they not only had the Bible on their side, but they had tradition. Right? The Bible, it's all going their way in this discussion. Tradition, all going their way in this discussion. All right? It's a very good, you know, you, people today, people today get very, get very upset when, when you disagree with their interpretation of, of how church should be done. In this, particular, in this particular instance, the Jews had that on their side. They had Torah. They had the scriptures. Remember, Romans isn't written yet. The New Testament isn't written yet. All they have is what we call the Old Testament. Right? It's all on their side. And that might just be a massive cultural leap for them. And I, for me, I feel like that's perfectly understandable. What Paul is trying to resolve in their minds, though, is this tension is this tension of these, of these Gentile believers and these Jewish believers, how are they going to coexist? How are they going to coexist in the same church without splitting apart at the seams? How can they have this, this unity with one another without this conformity of practice? Now, we don't have this same tension today. We don't have pagan temples around that are sacrificing animal, at least not that I'm aware of. I'm sure someone will come up to me and go, there's a place. No. Um, <clears throat> we don't generally, I'm going to say generally, <laughs> we don't generally have pagan temples that are sacrificing animals around the place. Um, and then Coles is going and buying up their produce and, and, and distributing it to us. And again, I'm saying probably not. I'm sure somebody believes that. Not here, but somewhere on the internet. Um, but we don't, we don't have this issue. We don't have this particular issue in our day. And we don't have this particular issue because most of us are Gentile believers. Most of us have, have grown up with uh, uh, almost, a, a, almost a Christianized culture. We have sort of practice. In the, most of us are pretty comfortable, you know, with this sort of um, Christian ideal, you know, that's, that's not distinctly Jewish. Right? So we don't have this exact issue. So then what are we to do with this text, Right? If, if we don't have a one-to-one -one correlation, how are we supposed to read this and, and, and follow Paul's advice to Timothy when he says all scriptures God breathed and is useful and profitable to teaching, training, and righteousness, right? How are, we supposed to, how are we supposed to take this passage? Well, I think what we need to do is we need to see and understand what is happening and we need to extract from it, extract from it the principles of wisdom that Paul is applying here. 
and then have a look around in our world and see if there's any situations that might not be one for one, but look very similar, very similar to the situation that they're facing here in Rome. So, a couple of the principles we need to understand. Firstly, there's a division in Rome over how church should be practiced and how Christians should live. Well, I'm sure if you look around, not in this room obviously, but the church down the road, you know that they're doing it wrong. (laughs) That's a joke if you're new. Um. (laughs) But we do this. We do this all the time. We get, we get so used to our tradition, we get so used to our cultural practices, we get so used to our way of doing things, that before long, we begin to associate our opinion and our way of doing things as the word of the Lord and the way it has to be done. So, there's some very strong differences of opinion here. And for some people... For some people in this passage, in in, in this issue here in Rome, some people take a more liberated approach and some people take a more constrained approach to the issue. Now, I'm sure as your minds begin to start thinking, you will recognize that, that we have these similar situations in the church today. Maybe it's not over meat or no meat. Well, maybe vegans, right? You know, but, but nobody's splitting a church over veganism. But what about the issue of alcohol? For some, for some, they, they will not drink because it is a conscience issue for them, right? Other people, they drink liberally. Both are Christians, and both can hold that opinion very strongly, okay? Maybe that's an issue. Maybe, maybe it's an issue of, of what kind of music we play on a Sunday, Or what kind of music um, should be allowed in a church. What the lyrical content should be. Some people feel very strongly. Some people feel very strongly about how music is conducted in a church. There's there's some people. um, There's some people uh, who believe that, that we don't need any new songs. God has given us all the songs we need. It's called the Psalms. You're smiling at me. Are you, are you one of these people? <laughs> Ooh. Um, <clears throat> but there, there, are some, there, there are some Christians who genuinely believe, because, because of their theology of Scripture, that, that God has given all the songs you will ever need to sing in the book of Psalms. And so we have no need for new songs because we have all the songs that God wants us. If he wanted new songs, if he wanted the latest Hill song, he would have written it down and he would have put it in the Psalms. That's a joke. That, they, they, they wouldn't believe <laughs> they wouldn't. That's, that's a caricature and I'm being mean, right? But, but there is, that, is a, that, is a, that is a genuine belief. It's called, it's called Psalter only, you know. They believe that the Psalms are the only songs that we should sing. And so if they were to come into your church, or rather this church, and they would hear no psalms being sung on a Sunday morning for the most part, they might begin to get quite upset about how we are practicing church. 
And so you can already begin to see that even though we don't have maybe a one-to-one correlation with this issue that's being faced here in Rome, we got a lot of issues. We've got a lot of issues that, that we face as, as the body of Christ, as the church of Christ more broadly. So if we are facing these issues, if we are facing these issues that threaten to divide us, that threaten to separate us, remember division and separation has is, is always been a threat to the church. It's always been a threat to the church. It's happening already here in the very early church in Rome, and it's happening today. And sometimes, sometimes Christians, we, we kind of come to this sort of middle, middle road of, of compromise. It's like, well, we're not going to divide the church, but what we're going to do is you go meet in that building. We're going to go meet in this building. As long as we don't talk to each other, everything will be fine. What is the basis for unity in the body of Christ if not conformity? Because for some people, they have a real issue. Well, of course we have denominations. Each person has to be able to practice their faith according to their conviction, right? But what I feel like we've inadvertently done is we've then, then just divided up the body of Christ according to convictions and just go, well, it's impossible for me to do mission with this person. They baptize babies. You know? How can I, how can I get on board with that? I don't believe that. And, and I don't. But, but we, we create these divisions and these boundaries. We create these difficulties about how and reasons how and why. It's probably better if we, just, if we can just sort of pat each other on the back from afar, but stay functionally divided. Paul... Paul gives this, Paul gives this as his answer to the Romans. He says, he gives it in, in verse 3. Well, I'll, I'll read verses 2 and 3. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. Verse 3, one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Because God has accepted him. What basis do we have for unity in the church, if not conformity of practice? Because realistically, conformity of practice is, is it's so far gone now, it's never going to happen. All right? We're all so different. And we have so many different pockets of church culture, not only here in Australia, but all around the world. So many different traditions and all these sorts of things. It's trying to get a, a uniform set of rules for how we're all going to practice together and how every Christian should believe, it's, it's going to be very challenging. So what basis do we have for unity then? Well, for Paul, for Paul, his reasoning, his reasoning for why it is you shouldn't be looking down on them and the reason why you shouldn't be judging them is because God has accepted them. God has accepted them. And this, this, this idea, this idea should, should feature so prominently when we are thinking, and interact, thinking about and interacting with Christians who disagree with us or come from different Christian cultural backgrounds. All right? 
Our first question before we begin to, to judge or parse out whether or not what they're doing is acceptable or unacceptable or clean or unclean or holy or unholy or whatever it is, is has God accepted this person? Are they Christians? Are they followers of Jesus? Now, we can have discussions. We can have discussions about, about ways Christians should live. We can have discussions about all, all sorts of manner of, of what practices are helpful or, or actually unhelpful in the faith. But the first thing we need to put in our, at the forefront of our minds, the first question we need to ask is, is this a brother? Is this a sister? In their understanding, to the best of their ability, have they trusted Jesus? Do they know about his death, his burial, and his resurrection? And are they, to the best of their ability, their knowledge, following him, trying to be faithful to him according to their understanding and knowledge? That's, that's where we start. And then once we've got that, if the answer is no, well, then we, we're having a whole different gospel conversation, right? But if the answer is, well, we are leagues apart on everything else, but at least, at least they believe in Jesus and they're trusting Jesus. Their faith is in Jesus to save them from their sin. Then we can begin to have these other conversations, Has God accepted them? Are they of the household of faith? Are they in the kingdom of God? I remember, I remember so strongly, it was a couple years ago, God convicted me over this. God massively convicted my heart over this. From Ephesians 4. He talked about, he talked about bearing with one another and striving for the unity and the bond of peace. Because there's one spirit, one baptism, one faith that we all share, and that we all experience. And I remember, because my heart was, was, was quite bitter to a lot of different Christian groups, my heart was incredibly judgy towards a lot of Christian groups. And I remember sitting there reading through Ephesians and studying Ephesians, and, 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 and God just brought this passage alive. And, and I felt like he just said, he's like, if you cannot find a reason to put somebody out, a genuine, legitimate reason to put somebody outside the kingdom, then you have a biblical obligation to strive for unity with that person. And, and striving for unity, it, you know, for me at that time, it meant I'm not going around slandering them. It means I'm not going around, and I'm not going around trying to put down their ministry. Or tell everyone why that bit of theology they believe is, is wrong and that's, and that's false. Now, it might be. It might be. But until I've had that conversation with that person, and I understand how they're approaching certain texts with, within their framework and worldview and understanding, so often we talk past one another because we assume that we're using words in the same way. And we assume we're, we, we, we've got this shared understanding and that they're actively rejecting your understanding of the scriptures. And it's just not true. It's the more people I have talked to and the more I've tried to listen to them, Christians, the more I find we have this unifying, we have this unifying faith 
and we've just been describing it differently. Now, there's some genuine differences, but often people will describe the same experience differently and say that they absolutely disagree on a, on a point of doctrine. So how do we practically work towards unity? How do we practically work towards unity? Because it's very nice for us to say, let's be unified. How do we practically do it? Firstly, the weak need to stop judging the strong. So, for those who are weak. Now, within this context, what Paul's saying, the weak were the ones who felt more constrained in their practice. These were the ones who, who had extra stipulations to what they felt faithfulness to God looked like in their lives. So perhaps it is, perhaps it is you know, refraining from alcohol. Perhaps it is not listening to non-Christian music. Or perhaps any, any number of a multitude. Perhaps it is Sabbath keeping. Perhaps it is, you know, like is it not, I genuinely feel like I need, to, I need to, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, maintain a Sabbath day in order to be faithful to God. Maybe that is a genuine conviction that the Lord's placed on your heart. That's where you're at right now. I don't, I don't want to say this in a way that sounds condescending, but according to the parameters of what Paul's saying here, that is regarded as a, a weaker faith. But Paul, Paul would say, if that's your position, he's not saying you need to change your mind, but the way that you're interacting with those around you needs to be not from a position of judging them for not holding the same convictions as you. Secondly, the strong need to stop looking down on the weak. So, if your conscience feels more liberal, you have more freedom to, 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 to go about and say and do as you please. You know, your conscience isn't bothered by drinking alcohol. Your conscience isn't bothered by watching certain movies and TV shows. Your conscience isn't bothered by any, any, the moment you start listing things, the moment you start listing like specifics, people will begin to go, well, that's not my thing. You know, I'm free and clear. I don't have to think about this issue, right? I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to be working on your heart, <laughs> to be highlighting things that, that for you, you're finicky about. And you've been judging other people about because they're not the same way that you are. I remember, yeah, anyways, I'm not going to tell that story. Um, but the strong need to stop looking down on the weak. So if, if you have a more liberal mind and conscience, and you come across a brother or a sister who has a, a conviction about something, you're like, why would you ever be convicted about that? Stop it. Accept the fact that your weaker brother or sister has a genuine conviction in their heart, and you need to protect that. You need to honor that conviction that they have in the Lord. Actually, I can bring up vegans now. There are some people who are vegans because, because they, they genuinely feel from God, they genuinely feel that from God that it is their duty and responsibility to act in a way to act, act in a way where they're not actually acting in violence towards God's creatures. Where, where they, they are protecting and preserving animals 
who have been given life by God. And so for them, it becomes a conscience issue for them to eat animals. Now, some of us in our hearts right now are going, ugh. I'm not. You are. <laughs> I've already let this passage work through my heart, so, you know. <laughs> but if that was you, You need, to, you need to view that brother or sister and you need to protect and preserve that issue of conscience. So when you go out to say, you know, lunches or you invite them around for dinner, maybe, maybe don't, <laughs> don't openly, you know, mock them or, you know, go, well, I'm going to eat two steaks because you're not. <laughs> you know, for every one animal you don't eat, I'm going to eat two. Protect those who are weaker in faith. Because Paul, Paul would say, Paul would, even, Paul would even go further here. Paul would go even further here and say, like, for those of you who are stronger, don't destroy the faith of your weaker and brother and sister because of your liberty. You see, let, let's, let's go back to the, the particular context that we're facing here. In, in Corinthians, Paul mentions a very similar issue, though it seems to be when he mentions weaker people in, in Corinthians, he may also be including a, a section of Gentiles as well. These were Gentiles who had been part of paganism, had been part of uh, cultic worship, um, had made sacrifices in pagan temples, and now they were having a difficult time disassociating, difficult time disassociating the meat that they were eating from the market with worship in the, in the pagan temples. So for them, it could very well have been, if I eat this meat, I'm somehow inadvertently worshiping this foreign god. And what Paul would say to them is, well, firstly, I know that idols are nothing and that nothing is unclean. So Paul seems to be part of that stronger crowd. He puts himself there and says, I can eat whatever. I don't mind. Right? It's not going to bother my conscience because I know the Lord has made all things clean. I just bless it and, and it's clean. It's fine. But for the weaker Christian who might be struggling, it's like, you know, well, I can see my other brothers and sisters. They're, they're free to eat this meat, but I don't know. I just feel like, I feel like my, I might be doing the wrong thing if I do this. Paul would say, if you have a brother or sister like that in your life, and that you're aware that they're having this struggle, he would say, I would never eat meat again. Rather than destroy their faith. Because your liberty, what it might inadvertently do is push them over the edge. Push them over the edge to do something that their conscience is not comfortable with yet. And Paul would say, and he says it here in Romans. He says it here in Romans. Let, let me just find it. He says, therefore, this is um, going on from verse 2. He says, therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother and sister. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. What's he saying? Is that your conscience is a very real arbiter of, of, of your heart. That, that wherever your conscience is at, that's what God is going to judge it judge you based on. Right? So if you feel completely conviction-free to eat meat in this particular circumstances and, and still be faithful to God, great. If you have a conviction, though, that it would be wrong for you to eat meat and you go ahead and eat it because you see other Christians eating it, 
then God would say, why are you doing that? Because you've made a decision to be unfaithful, at least in your mind, to what God has convicted you about. So that brings me to my third point. So the first one is the weak need to stop judging the strong. If you have a particular conviction, you don't get to put that conviction on other people and try and rein them in to your standard. Secondly, the strong need to stop looking down on the weak. Stop making fun of, belittling those who have a, have a conviction about something that you don't have. Thirdly, look higher. And what this, this is what I mean is, Paul will say in, in verses 5 to 7, he'll, he'll, give, this, he'll give this little um, explanation. He says, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. So, What's Paul saying here? Is he saying that there is no such thing as clean and unclean? Or that truth and, and good practice is just merely a, a matter of subjective opinion? What Paul is saying here is, <laughs> I'm extrapolating. What I think he, he would be saying here is that in the midst of a world that is not always black and white, there are innumerable amounts of gray in the middle. Sometimes we are not always going to be able to determine what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong for someone to do. It's just not always that clear cut. And if you've ever done like basic philosophy courses and, and been and faced with moral conundrums, you would know, you would know that that is not always, like that things are just not always so clear cut. And there's a whole bunch of gray in a lot of people's lives. And so what Paul would argue is that in the midst of this disagreement, firstly, be convicted. Be convinced in your own mind of your own opinion. You don't get off of doing your own due diligence before the Lord. All right? Each of you should do your own due diligence, your own study, arrive at your own convictions, from the scriptures, with the help of the Holy Spirit, let him lead you and guide you as to what you are going to believe about any issue, any, any, any one of these issues, okay? But here's the challenge, is when that happens, we all come to different decisions about things. We all come to different convictions and conclusions about things. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to be unified if, if we can't have conformity? Paul's solution, I believe, is to look higher. It means I go to you and I say, you know, I notice that you do this or I notice you don't do this. Why? And I have a conversation. And I go and I find out, why does this person have this conviction? Why does this person think the way that they do? And then likewise, they can ask me why I think the way I think 
and why I'm convicted in the certain areas that I'm convicted in. And, and what we can then do when we have this conversation when we're not treating each other as enemies, because remember, God has accepted us if we're in Christ. Remember that. God has accepted this person. You're not a better judge than God. If God has accepted this person, we have this conversation. What I'm looking to go away from this conversation is not having convinced you that I'm right and you're wrong. What I'm looking for is, is this person being faithful to God? Are they living according to their conviction, based on what they know and understand, based upon their experience of the world, which is very different from mine? And if I can see if I can see to the best of my ability that this person is actually just genuinely trying to be faithful to the Lord with what God has given them, then I can strive for unity with that person. If I'm stronger in the faith than this person over this particular issue, then I can lovingly constrain myself when I'm around them for their sake. If I'm weaker than this person on this particular issue and I still think they're wrong about it after having this conversation and they didn't listen to me I can be free from judging that person the reason why I can be free from judging that person because that ain't my job each of us will give an account of himself before God and so we all help each other to walk faithfully. We all help each other to, to, to honor the Lord. And we will have these back and forth discussions where we talk about maybe what we feel like the Spirit's putting on our hearts. We'll talk about passages of scriptures and, and how to interpret them and how that should affect how we practice. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what we're looking for is has this person been accepted by God? Are they part of the household of faith? And if they are, then wherever they're at in their faith journey, what I'm looking for is are they being faithful? Are they trying to be faithful to the convictions that God's placed on their heart, their understanding of Scripture, so on and so forth? And if, and if they are, then I can strive for unity with them. The reason why this is necessary in today, today's day and age is because we are facing more and more pressure as Christians. There is a very big issue in our world today. And Christians are coming down on different sides of this one issue. And if we are not careful, it will begin to tear and break apart the church. And so in all of your interactions, both online and in person, I want you to remember, I want you to remember, wherever you sit on this issue, or any issue rather, what you're asking yourself, first and foremost, is are they part of the household of faith? Are they accepted by God? Has God accepted them by Jesus Christ? And then, if that is true, then accept the fact that each of us will give an account to God for the decisions we make and the way we act and we live. And we may want to help each other, we may want to encourage each other, and that's good and that's healthy. But there's going to be brothers and sisters, even in this congregation, who are going to come down on very different sides of the same subject.
And when that happens, we are not dividing as a church. We're not going to break up over it. We're not going to have infighting about it. Because unity in Jesus is just so much more important. And so whichever side you come down on, we're going to find a way to work together. We're going to find a way to love one another. We're going to find a way to support one another. We're going to find ways to come together. We're going to find ways to bring each other through these difficult times. This is why it's so important, so important that we strive for this unity. That we take Paul's counsel here to the church in Rome. And we extrapolate its wisdom and we apply it today. Because we're going to need it. We are absolutely going to need it. All right. I'm going to invite the team back. And I'm, I'm going to pray. If you're able, I'd love for you to stand. Lord, we know it's your desire for us to be wise. That Jesus, if we're ever going to reign and rule with you, we need to be wise, far wiser than we are today. As Holy Spirit, I just ask, I ask that you would help us. Help us that, help us to, to, to think clearly, to think rightly, but more importantly, to act faithfully towards you and to keep faith with our brothers and sisters. That Jesus, in the midst of everything that's going on in the world, that Lord, our eyes would be lifted to your throne. That we would take our eyes off all the things that would potentially divide us or tear us apart. And that we would find our unity in you, Jesus. Gathered around your throne. Gathered in worship. Exalting your name. And so Lord, I ask that you would give us a greater infilling of your love this morning. And let it work itself out through this week and the coming months and years. God, we just thank you so much for your graciousness and how good you have been to us. We thank you, Jesus.